This is Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman-Errant. Hello, friends. <laughs> a lot happening on the show today. We are talking about making friends in adulthood. Mm. And not just acquaintances, but real, meaningful connections. Meaningful. That can be hard to do for a lot of people. Today, we're going to break it down into the science of how to make lasting platonic bonds. Also, Avi, one of the largest private collections of African-American historical items in the world is housed at Temple University. Mm -hmm. That comes thanks to Charles Bloxon, who passed away this summer. We are remembering him and taking a look back at some of the most treasured items in that collection. But before we get to all that, Cherry, you know Ari Shapiro. I absolutely do. We listen to his voice all the time. We do. He is one of the hosts of All Things Considered, and I got to speak with him recently about his memoir, The Best Strangers in the World. He grew up in Portland, went to Yale, but got his start at NPR as an intern for legal correspondent Nina Totenberg. And our conversation actually starts right after that internship with Nina ended. One of my favorite stories in the book is about how she tries to help you get a job as the internship is winding down. Can you tell that story? She's so amazing. I mean, I think it says so much about her that as I was looking for a job, didn't know what I was going to do, didn't have any promising leads. She knew that I loved to cook. I'd been living in this shared studio apartment with somebody who I found on Craigslist. And so she said, why don't I hire you to come to my house, cook dinner for a bunch of people who I'll invite who could all give you jobs. And so she invited the former deputy attorney general and a member of Congress and, like, very high-level Washington VIPs. I spent all day cooking in her kitchen and then sat down to dinner with all of these amazing people. And she sort of made the pitch saying, like, this is my intern, Ari. He's very good. He's very smart. He's very motivated. He needs a job. I didn't get a job out of that evening. But remembering what she did for me and the risk she took kind of sticking her neck out and inviting people who she respected and admired and wouldn't have wanted to embarrass herself in front of and trusting me to cook for them. Like, that was an amazing gesture. It's an insanely generous thing to do for a boss to an intern. Completely. Absolutely. You worn a lot of hats at NPR. And eventually, one of those hats was White House correspondent Mm -hmm. during the Obama years. For a lot of people... This is the Apex, major national news organization, White House correspondent. Seemed like you took the job kicking and screaming. Yeah, I Uh, mean, uh, that's not totally wrong. I turned down the job the first time I was asked to do it. I thought, you know, yeah, this is a prestigious job. But frankly, it feels a little like it might be unfulfilling because the negative stereotype of covering the White House is that you're just a stenographer to power. Like, every day you're reporting, today the president said, today the president did, and you're in a place that is full of dozens of other reporters covering the exact same thing. It's really hard to get any new story that other people aren't telling. And I was just afraid that I was going to be unable to do work that would have any impact or be memorable. But what I didn't realize was that, first of all, It's an incredible learning opportunity. In the years that I was on the White House beat, every day I had to digest something complicated and new in a way that has prepared me so much for hosting All Things Considered. Because when you're covering the White House, like, you wake up one day and the story is nuclear policy and you wake up the next day and the story is the debt ceiling and the day after that it is the coronavirus pandemic and 
suddenly you have to know about epidemiology and economics and nuclear policy. And so being on the White House beat, even though it was beat reporting, forced me to learn how to really, really quickly get up to speed on a whole lot of different things. It's an omnivorous type of beat. In, totally. In a yeah. lot of ways. But I, I, and I, because I was not a political junkie, I think I didn't filter every story through the lens of, and here's what it means for the Republicans versus the Democrats. And so I think I was able to tell more human and hopefully more interesting stories that weren't just kind of like horse race, who's up, who's down, which is a trap that I think a lot of political journalists sometimes fall into. I actually want to stay on that topic a little bit because um, you then became NPR's uh, London correspondent. And in that chapter, you mention a story you did that I still remember. Wow. Which one was it? About distillery cats. Oh, my God. Yes. Who rid the distilleries of pests. Oh, it and has in such Scotland, a sad ending, though. But yeah, don't spoil on. it. Don't okay, spoil it. I won't. I won't. In Scotland, you met a kitten named mm-hmm. Pete who was about to become the new head mouser at this very old distillery yeah. in Scotland. And I want to play the end of the piece. Hi, Pete. Oh, my God. You're so tiny. Back at Glen Turret Distillery in Scotland, Pete is just six months old. A little puffball, the color of smoke. We approach with our big, fluffy microphone, hoping to pick up a teeny meow. He has grabbed the microphone. I think he's got the instincts. Pete clearly has the killer reflexes of a champion mouser. Not to mention the looks. Ari Shapiro, NPR, Muse. Puffball smoke is a great line, by the way. Well, uh, his name is spelled P-E-A-T. P-E-A-T. Yeah. Uh, I forgot that I signed off on that story, NPR. <laughs> I think my producer, Rich Preston, dared me to do it. And I was like, all right, I'll do it. Like, that might be why I remember the story, though. <laughs> but here's my question off of that. There are a lot of capital S stories, big J journalism stories you can talk about in a book like this. And you get to a lot of them. Why is that story in there? Because I loved it. Because it was so funny. Because there, there is, when you're ready to share it, a postscript punchline that I had to include. But also, like, I have always felt like some people think of the news as darkness and misery. And sure, there is an aspect of what we cover that is like talking to people on the worst day of their lives. But life is more than that. And what we should portray in our news coverage is like the wonderful variety that makes up the texture of a life and a life in journalism. It's not just, and then here's this other person I met who was really in a bad way. Like being a journalist allows me to go in and not just, you know, talk to somebody in rural India whose home is being swallowed by rising seas, but also meet Pete the distillery cat during his very brief life. Yeah, so the punchline, right, is... Well... That story sat on a shelf for a while before it finally aired. And when it did air, Rich, my producer, got an email. He kind of blanched. And then he told me he just heard from the distillery that the previous day, that little kitten Pete had been hit by a car and died. And they wanted to give the staff 24 hours to absorb the news before they announced it publicly. And in those 24 hours, our story aired. And so the next day... NPR's Robert Siegel, host of All Things Considered, aired an obituary for Pete the Cat, and it mentioned that people online were already suggesting names for his replacement, and one of the most popular ones was, Avi, you want to give the punchline? Re-Pete. <laughs> R.I. Pete, by the way. R.I. Pete. Um, so, but I think there is something really important in that. I don't bring it up just because it's a good story. 
And that I'm happened. so glad that you remember it, though. It's because I remember it. That, to me, is so meaningful because I hear a lot of stories every day. And frankly, it's like swimming in a river of stories. Oh, totally. Yes, absolutely. And only a few stand out. And they are often stories like that. Yeah. One analogy that I have used as I think about sort of why I wanted to write this book is that covering the news every day feels like standing on the bank of a swollen river and like branches and leaves go by and that you just they float on downstream and you never see them again. And there's something nice about that, that like, you know, it's constantly changing. But what I realize is that like some have snagged as they've gone yeah. by and they've changed me and shaped the person I am. And so what I wanted to explore in this book was both how the stories I've told have shaped the person I've become and also how my identity and history and the person I am shapes the stories that I tell. So it's kind of two sides of the coin. Let me reintroduce you. You know the voice, of course. We're talking with Ari Shapiro. His memoir just came out. It's called The Best Strangers in the World, Stories from a Life Spent Listening. It is a memoir, but I think as we're talking about here, I I think it's also a thesis statement about journalism and what you want journalism to be. I'm going to read a quote here. I'm happy to interview a senator or a cabinet secretary about the political controversy du jour, but I think news organizations often make a mistake by valorizing those bone-dry interviews over flesh and blood stories of culture, emotion, and personal experience. And I, I feel that as someone who, who, who listens to All Things Considered Every Day as part of my job. Is there some way you would reorder All Things Considered so it more matches that vision? I actually think, thanks to everybody, not just me, we are moving in that direction. Hmm. And when we talk about how we are going to cover a major story in the news, way more than when I started in journalism, even way more than when I started hosting All Things Considered, people want to talk to folks who are affected by policy. People want to discuss pop culture and the way that it shapes our lives. People want to discuss the thing that everyone is talking about in a smart, thoughtful, informative way. This isn't TMZ, nor should it be. But if there is something that is the topic of conversation that everybody is mulling over, I think there's more enthusiasm now for us to find a way that we, as all things considered, can do our smart treatment of it rather than say, well, let's you know leave that to the people who cover pop culture, which is not us. I think a lot of people probably pull this out from the book because it is seems kind of stunning, I suppose, to us even just 20 years later. 2004. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> you, wanted, you, you wanted to get married yeah. to your longtime partner and you asked your bosses for permission. Yeah, he was my college boyfriend and we'd been together for years by that point. And I did ask my bosses, who to their credit were like, yes, of course, go get married. Right. But of course, it's the asking right that we find interesting, I think, looking back 19 years later. Well, at the time, gay marriage was not legal in the vast majority of the country, in almost the entire country. And Gavin Newsom was at the time the mayor of San Francisco, and he just decided he was going to start doing same-sex marriage. And so in a way, getting married in that context could have been seen as an act of protest or an act of civil disobedience. To me, it was an act of love, an act of commitment. It was just getting married. It's funny to think about now because the needle has moved so much that it seems absurd. And yet at the time, it was a huge controversy. And I had friends who were queer 
who had been with their partners much longer than I'd been with Mike, who would later go on to get married, but wanted to wait until the issue was resolved because they, as journalists, didn't want to be seen as stepping into a battle in the culture wars. So I am wondering, it, it, it's hard to square that Ari Shapiro with the person talking so openly about his life in this book. And I'm wondering if you feel that what's changed in those 19 years is simply our societal attitudes toward the institution of gay marriage, or if in addition to that, your opinion about big O objectivity in journalism has changed. Oh, both are completely true. I mean, just factually speaking, gay marriage is no longer a controversy as it was 20 years ago. And also, I, at this point in my career, as somebody who's been hosting All Things Considered for seven years, who is in his mid-40s, who has a strong sense of self, I'm not going to apologize for the fact that I got married or even, like, let's go beyond marriage, which is a very, like, you know, institutional, small-c conservative structure. You know, I write in the book about partying with the radical fairies and like going to an underwear party with Alan Cumming. And like there are other things that's 20 years ago. I would have been like, oh my God, is my career going to end? Like, can I actually do this? And part of what I want to do in the book is tie together all of these different threads and say that like you can be many things at once and objectivity is a worthwhile goal. And that doesn't mean you don't carry your identity and history and personality and thoughts with you. You would want a young journalist today to have the confidence that I, I suppose, or the sense of self that you have now and not feel that that a young journalist would have to kind of, I don't know, obscure who they are. Yeah, and you know, part of what I see as I look back on my 20-year career is that when I initially felt like journalism might not be a place for a person like me, some of that might have been just feeling like a fish out of water or imposter syndrome or call it whatever you want. And some of it might have been true that, like, journalism actually was not a welcoming place for people like me. But I sort of decided, well, I'm just going to sort of set up camp here and maybe at some point it will become more welcoming. And I also realized that I was far from the first person who had done that. In fact, NPR was founded by a bunch of incredible women who – could not find a place in hard news journalism elsewhere. All Things Considered was the first nationally broadcast news program to be anchored by a woman, Susan Stamberg. And so, like, I was inheriting this long tradition of people saying, I'm going to help journalism evolve. And there are people younger than me working on All Things Considered now, helping journalism evolve in ways that I might not have been aware of. Yeah. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Ari Shapiro author of the new memoir, The Best Strangers in the World, Stories from a Life Spent Listening, uh, host of All Things Considered, which you hear all the time here on WHYY, and a renaissance man, which I got to get to. Um, Okay, when I read the book, it was almost like you have a Forrest Gumpian way of just sort of floating (laughs) through the- Forrest Gumpian way, I love that. That is so good. (laughs) Floating through the world and just getting sucked into the orbit of these famous, talented people. I I believe it's because you have talent, but the way it's written (laughs) in the book is almost like you're just being sort of randomly, magnetically pulled into their world. I do feel that way sometimes. (laughs) Well, I I felt that when you were writing it. So I want you to tell folks um, about the the band slash orchestra, Pink Martini, uh, and how you ended up 
Tori with them. So they're from Portland, Oregon, where I grew up. And I have been a fan of theirs since I was in high school. And they've been around for almost 30 years. And I became friends with them over the years. Whenever they would come to Washington, D.C., I would throw a party for them. And one of those evolved into a kind of late-night sing-along around the piano upstairs at my house. And Pink Martini's band leader is the pianist, Thomas Lauderdale. And the next morning, he called me and he said, Hey, Ari, I forgot you can really sing. And we're writing this song for the next album that we want a man to sing. And actually, that night, the band was performing at a venue just outside D.C. called Wolf Trap, which is sort of this beautiful outdoor summer destination. So I remember being backstage at Wolf Trap with Thomas, and he was on this rickety old out-of-tune upright piano. And he started playing. They had taken this Schubert melody and put a big band swing beat to it, and they were in the process of writing lyrics to this song called But Now I'm Back. A few months later, the song was written, uh, and I recorded it in Portland with the band. And then Thomas said, well, now we need to find a time for you to perform live with us, so why don't you come to the Hollywood Bowl? Which, as you may be aware, seats 18,000 people. And so that was the first place I ever sang with any band anywhere in front of a live audience was at the Hollywood Bowl this legendary venue uh, that I'm happy to say I've been back to many times since and now really enjoy performing at. Although it was terrifying that first time. Uh, this actually, this clip actually might be from Wolf Trap. Um, it's a duet with you and Pink Martini lead singer, China Forbes, and you're singing uh, Get Happy, Happy Days, the duet. Um, let's give it a whirl. Forget your troubles. Happy days. Come on, get happy. Are here You've again. The sky. So your cares away. Are clear again. Shout hallelujah. So let's sing and a just song get happy. of cheer again. Get ready happy days for are the judgment here. That is uh, Ari Shapiro, our guest, playing the role of. Judy Garland or Barbara Streisand? Well, the two of us, one of the two. Actually, Alan Cumming and I do the same duet and we switch parts. We do the opposite. So I always forget like, wait, am I Barbara now or am I Judy? (laughs) And that's a totally different headspace. Are you Judy or are you Barbara? I know. Very different. Um, I just want to thank you for taking the time to come in and speak with us on Studio Two. I have one more question. Hit it. It's a serious question. Okay. People call me Ari. Yeah. All the time. Well, they call me Ari, so what are you going to do? But I'm pretty sure they call me Ari because they know you and they know your voice. And they just map your name onto mine. Hmm. So could you lean into the microphone there and just say, my name is Ari and his name is Avi? My name is Ari and his name is Avi. Got it? (laughs) Got it? Got it, folks. Is that Uh, clear? I'm so glad you two set the record straight, Avi. I have never called you Ari. You have okay? not. No, as a matter of fact, it's Avi Wolfman Aarons, like parent. That I- is so correct. That is right. Thank you, Cherry T. Greg. <laughs> Coming up right here on Studio 2, next to the science of making a new friend at any age. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. 
Find NPR's Through Line wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome back, everybody, to Studio Two. I'm Avi Wolfman Eric. And I'm Cherry Gregg. And I am very excited about today's topic. We're talking about adult friendships. And when we were first pitched this, I thought to myself, Cherry, you seem like somebody who makes new friends pretty easily. I've been pretty lucky. Two of my best friends made in my 30s. So, you know, but it's possible for everybody, even folks who think it is hard. Yeah. It's and all- I do. And I do think it's hard. Yeah. But if you're willing to have a positive mindset and be intentional about it, it can work. But I get that it's really not an easy thing for a lot of folks, though. So we had to bring in an expert. Exactly. On this topic. University of Maryland professor Marissa Franco, who offers a lot of helpful tips and advice in her book, Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. Marissa, I wanted to start by establishing for folks who are listening out there and maybe struggling to make friends that they are not alone. You had a piece in The Globe and Mail, I believe, talking about how it's harder to make friends these days. Can you lay out your argument for us? Yeah. So friendship networks have been decreasing for decades now, since about the 1950s. Mm. And um, what happened in the 1950s? That was in Bowling Alone. Robert Putnam explores this really well. That was the creation of the television. Before the television, Uh. we spent our leisure time around other people. And then we started to spend it in our four walls. And the television triggered this lethargy where we're just like, we don't want to do anything else. I call it the plop effect. You plop down on the couch (laughs) and you don't get off. Um, But then around 2012, we started to see more peaks in loneliness. And what was happening around that time was the creation of the smartphone. It became Mm. very, very widespread. And what we've seen happening is that the smartphone has displaced in-person interactions that You know, in the past, when people might have had that time with themselves, they might use it to reach out to other people. But social media apps are giving us this pseudo sense of connection, wherein it's like we're continuously snacking, but never getting the full meal Mm. of connection. And that's happening to everyone around us. So the people that would have reached out to us are now doing the same thing. Um, And so it makes connection really, really difficult. I think connection now is harder than it has been in human history. And I wrote Platonic because I believe that while society makes connection really hard, there's possible ways that we can swim upstream against that. I want us to just sort of define what constitutes a friendship? What is a friend? Well, I have a unique definition of this. I mean, if you look into the research, you'll see things like it's voluntary, you like each other, you trust each other more than a stranger. Um, So those are a couple of things. But I define, you know, the difference between good friend and good company. So often we think of Some people think of someone as a friend if they enjoy their company and they like them. But to me, that's good company. A good friend is someone who's invested in you, who shows up in your times of need, who supports you in your positive moments, who's committed to working through things with you. It's it's an investment and it's commitment and it's effortful. And I think a lot of us think that friendship should be passive and think that friendship should be organic. And I think that really gets in the way of our ability to make and sustain powerful friendship. All right. So where do we start? I want to make a friend. I want to make friends. Um, I'm an adult post-college. You know, I have a job. Maybe I work a little bit in person, a little bit at home. Where do I start? Yeah, this is a really good question. So I often suggest that people join something that's repeated over time. So not like a happy hour, but like a professional development group or 
not like a book lecture, but a book club that meets monthly or weekly. And the reason that I tell people to do something that's repeated is because you capitalize on something called the mere exposure effect. And that is our tendency to like people who are familiar to us. If we commit to some sort of group to show up, you know, for about three months before we quit, because what the mere exposure effect means is that it's going to be uncomfortable at first. Connection Mm -hmm. is inherently uncomfortable. Our brains predispose us to feel weary and mistrusting of new people. The problem is a lot of people think that that's a sign that they should eject from connection rather than part of the process of connection. Mm. The other thing that I suggest is that, you know, when you're around other people, sometimes we engage in something called covert avoidance, which means I'm showing up physically, but checking out mentally. I'm on my phone. I'm in the corner. I'm talking to the one person I already knew. And it's not just about showing up around people, but it's about engaging with people when you get there. You have to say, you know, hi, my name is Marissa. How have you been enjoying this? If you find someone you like in the group, you have to say to them, hey, it's been so nice to connect with you. Would you be open to meeting after this event or meeting before this event? You know, I think a lot of us think that friendship is something that could, that should happen organically. But one study found that people that think friendship happens organically are lonelier five years later, whereas those that think that it takes effort are less lonely five years later because they make the effort. Some people will have this social awkwardness. You get nervous around uh-huh. new people. I, I do. Yeah, yeah, I just... I, I kind of do too, but I push through. And so I want to bring in a comment from Al who asks, how does fear play into making new friends? How does it hold us up from making new friends? And how hard is it to build trust? And I really want to so, sort of focus on that fear part yeah. because yeah. you go in and, and you feel like, oh, what do I even say to this person? Or I'm being judged. Yeah, or, yeah. you're being yeah. yeah. I think one of the biggest impediments to us making friends is this assumption that people just don't like us and are going to reject us. It's this fear of rejection. But what we see in the research is that when strangers interact and they predict how liked they are by one another, they tend to underestimate how liked they are. It's a phenomenon called the liking gap. And so we are liked more than we think. And what we also see is that people that tend to fear rejection think they're going to be rejected, they actually reject people. They come off as more closed off, more withdrawn, less interested, They go into this self-protection mode and we don't always realize when we're in self-protection mode, we're actually sacrificing our relationships because a lot of things we need to do to build relationships rely on us making ourselves more vulnerable, like me initiating, me showing interest, me putting myself out there, um, me being vulnerable with you, me sharing affection with you. All those things make us more vulnerable and our fears can really inhibit those things, which is why one thing that I suggest when it comes to making friends is Try to assume that people like you. You know, when you're mm-hmm. going into a new interaction, remind yourself of that. This is based off of research on something called the acceptance prophecy, which does find that when people are told, even though this is a lie and the researchers were decepting them, but the researcher said, hey, you're going to go into this group and be accepted based on your personality profile in our analysis. Mm-hmm. It found that people became warmer, open, friendlier, and it became a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy that when we think other people are going to like us, it triggers warm, kind, friendly behaviors that make us more likely to be liked. It's tough, though, for I mean, for me, because it almost feels con- feels a little conceited to go into an interaction and think this person likes me. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> Everybody I, I'm likes more me. wired to think like, <laughs> yeah, it just it almost feels like ego. But kind of what you're saying is you, you can't think of it that way. I think we get into this place of ego when we think I'm better than other people. Mm. But I think we go into this place of openness to give and receive love when we think I am likable and you are likable. Like we are both equally likable and equally worthy. 
And realizing that, you know, thinking you're better than people is not going to facilitate connection because connection doesn't happen on a hierarchy where one person feels superior to another. You know, it makes us hard to be interested and curious about people. And if people feel inferior, it makes them the fear response kick in where they're so afraid of rejection. And so it's not about thinking hierarchically about liking, but but when we assume other people like us, we're fundamentally more likely to be liking towards them, to show mm. more love towards them. So it makes us warmer and it makes us friendlier, which is really different from egotistical behaviors, which are more about being arrogant or acting superior to other people. Marissa, I met two of my best friends as an adult, and we had actually known each other for quite some time, especially one of them. We knew each other for a while. And then it took us some years I think (laughs) to warm up and then one day we realized that we were just going deeper in our friendship and then we were like wow like you're one of my best friends and how do you sort of open up and and to make that deeper friendship and and establish that mutual connection because a lot of times you keep those relationships very superficial you know I think when it comes to being vulnerable with other people We're so afraid of judgment, but the research is very clear on this. The more we intimately self-disclose, the more liked we are by other people. When we picture how we come off when we're vulnerable, we think people perceive us negatively. When we picture how other people come off when they're vulnerable, when they admit to mistakes or struggles they have with their body, we see them more positively, that we underestimate how positively people see us as when we're vulnerable. We just think of the judgment when in fact it's also making us people perceive us as more authentic because it says I trust you you're special to me you know this relationship uniquely makes me feel safe and those are all things that create deeper feelings of connection speaking of vulnerability I want to bring in an email from Dan Dan says some adults seem to have a ton of friends a big friend group others have one or two really good friends how do you stop comparison if you're one of those people who who don't have a large group of friends that is a point of vulnerability Mm -hmm. for a lot of people Yeah. So the research certainly finds that it's quality connection that matters more than quantity for our happiness. So, you know, if you have close quality connection, that's going to make you happier than if you have a big group of people. The caveat is that around like mid 20s, that's when we tend to have our largest group of friends. As we get older, particularly later in life, we tend to really prune our friendships and try to let go of those friends that aren't within our closest circle. And the reason why that really makes sense is because when we're in our 20s, we're looking to expand our sense of identity and experience novelty and adventure. And that's what we do through other people. They expose us to so many new things, new hobbies, new interests, new ways of presenting ourselves to the world. But as we get older, we start thinking, I only have this much time left. I want to expend it with people that are really meaningful to me. And so the number of friends reflects our needs at life in a given time. Mm. If we are in a place in our life where we're like feeling really stable, we might want to explore novelty, finding more friends, you know, meeting more people, having that sense of adventure. But when we are in times of difficulty and times of stress, it's those quality connections that are really going to matter. We tend to crave those what's called secure bases, those people that make us feel really close and feel really safe. And so it's not that one's superior to another. It's just that depending on where we're at in our life and what our goals are at a particular time, it might make sense to have a smaller group of friends versus a broader group of friends. And that, I think, is the perfect transition to this question. There are so many songs where the mantra is no new friends. Mm -hmm. Instead, everybody's Mm -hmm. like, this person is my day one, my original friend, my OF 
from back in the day, <laughs> uh, the folks you grew up with. Is this a reasonable way of being forever, like throughout your life? And if so, why or why not? Oh, gosh. <laughs> you know, I, I don't I don't know the new the psyche of the no new friends. But I will say when we when we're deciding on uh, relationships, we use three things to kind of decide on, on whether we want new new friendships and new relationships. One is the history we've had with a person, how much we've invested already. So what that means is, is if I do a high investment behavior with you, like if I travel with you to Spain and I hardly know you, I'm going to be a lot more invested in the friendship. And then the other is how satisfied we are with the relationship, which we think is the biggest predictor of whether we want to hang out with someone is how satisfied we are. But it's actually only one of three. And the third is, do we see ourselves as having alternatives? So if we see that there's no alternatives, we're going to kind of stick to our childhood friends, even if we don't really get along with them. So when it comes to deciding whether to make no new friends or not, we tend to weigh these different things. So I could say maybe the no new friends people, they have um, people that they have long histories with. They may be very satisfied in those relationships and they may not perceive that there's other alternatives that are as good as the friends that they have now. And if we're at that place, then we tend to have more no mm-hmm. new friends behavior. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to ask a, a follow-up question about making friends as a kid versus making friends as an adult. One thing that you have sort of in your back pocket as a kid is, is school and certain like regular social functions. So you have exposure to the same people over and over again, and you maybe get some of that as an adult through work, but, but not quite as much. Um, is that the reason why it sometimes feels easier to make friends as a kid? Or is it because of just like brain development stuff that's happening as a kid that makes friendship easier? Or is it like a mix of the two? So sort of circumstance versus what's going on in your brain. Oh, that's a good question. I am not as familiar with the literature on brain development and how it affects friendship, but I am familiar on the research on circumstance and how it affects friendship Mm. for friendship to happen organically We need repeated unplanned interaction, like school. We see each other every day, nobody planned it. And we need shared vulnerability. And that's school, that's recess, that's lunch. As we move forward in adulthood, we are working with people, but we're not necessarily vulnerable with them. Mm -hmm. And in fact, some research finds that the more time we spend together at work, the less close we feel. And so what that means for us is that if we assume that friendship should just happen organically like we did in childhood, we're not recognizing we're in a different context now. We don't have that same setting which provides us with opportunities. We can't rely on the same assumption that it's just going to happen for us. We need to recreate this experience of having repeated unplanned interaction and shared vulnerability, which is why I tell people who want to make friends, look up a hobby or interest that you can do in community with other people so that you have in your life the same infrastructure that you had when you were a kid that really made it easier to make friends. I want to sort of talk about the intentionality of building a friendship. You know, is it like dating at all? These platonic relationships that you're trying to build? Do I put, do I get all spruced up and get the baby hairs together so I can take out my new friend? How should it work? You know, it's interesting. I think when it comes for us, yes, we need to be intentional, just like many people are with dating, where they're so intentional about going on apps and really looking for someone to date. We need to be as intentional about friendships. Otherwise, we're going to not have a sense of community. I do think we prioritize different things in friendships for a romantic partner. I mean, appearance may be pretty important for a romantic partner. But when it comes to making friends, what people prioritize, I thought before I wrote Platonic was finding someone who's entertaining and witty and fun and funny. Mm -hmm. And what we see in the research is that's actually the least important thing. Mm. 
And the most important thing people report wanting to a fr- in a friend is someone who makes them feel loved and someone who makes them Aww. feel like they matter. Paul said uh, making friends in the U.S. is much harder than what he was used to when he was living in Armenia. He says people here are less open-minded and oftentimes have their established close friend circles and are suspicious of strangers. Do we see differences in data among different countries about rates of friendship or culture even yeah mm, yeah this is a good question i'm not sure if i can answer this like cross-cultural question i'm i'm sure that it's right just anecdotally speaking i just can't spit up data yeah. <laughs> that supports different rates of friendship across um different locations i will say the un- there is some like unfortunate news which is like there's been a global increase in loneliness in 2012 mm. um because of you know access to the smartphone i think the one country that didn't have an increase um, was South Korea, where the smartphone was already established before 2012. Uh, wow. Well, that's that's <laughs> um, a little bleak. Really yeah. yeah, I mean, the thing that I do see cross-culturally that does make a difference is um, this phenomenon called homohysteria, which in the research is straight men's fear of being perceived as gay, which can really inhibit um, straight men's ability to make friends, where hmm. some men feel like, I can't initiate a friendship, they're going to think I want, you know, I want more from the friendship, or I can't tell them I love them, or I can't be vulnerable. All these behaviors that are really normalized in women's friendships, a lot of men feel uncomfortable doing, which explains why, you know, men are half as likely to be vulnerable or show affection to other men, and men's friendships tend to be less strong than women's friendships. But we do see cross cultural differences in homo hysteria. In countries where there's low what's called homo suspicion, which is suspicion that other people might be gay, mm. you know, I guess where, you know, people don't even talk about sexual orientation, there tends to be a lot more intimacy amongst male friendships because that fear isn't hovering over people in the same way. I want to talk about our romantic partners a little bit. How do friend, adult friendships help or hurt our marriages or partnerships? And how do you establish, you know, these types of friendships without sort of upsetting your relationship in that way? This is a great question because I think sometimes we have this myth that friendship and romantic partnership are at odds. When we spend time with our friends, we're not spending time with our romantic partner. But what we see from the research is that if I make a friend, not only is my romantic partner less depressed, um, and not only am I less depressed, but so is my romantic partner. We see that if I get into conflict with my romantic partner, it affects negatively affects my release of the stress hormone cortisol, but not if I have quality connection outside of this partnership. So in fact, friendship facilitates our ability to be in a romantic partnership because we have these little interventions making us happy and grounding us and making us feel like better partners to other people. So I would actually encourage people, if you feel threatened by your partner making friends, that actually it's going to make your relationship Hmm. a lot better if you encourage your romantic partner to make friends. We, We only have like 30 seconds left though, but just on that point, Sometimes it's not so much that my partner would be restraining me, but that I would feel guilty about telling my partner, hey, I'm going to go hang out with the fellas right now and, and sort of spinning that as a good thing for them. I mean, how do you have that? At 30 seconds. How do you have that conversation with your partner? Yeah, I think it's good to have a general conversation, not in a moment where you're like, I'm going to hang out with my friends, but <laughs> how it. do we want to balance, you know, the time we spend with each other versus the time we spend with our community? What feels good for us? You know, do we want to find community together with each other's friends? Do we want to do it separate? Just having a larger conversation on how you want to navigate that. That was our conversation with University of Maryland professor Marissa Franco. Her book is Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. Up next, the life, legacy, and massive collection of the late historian and author Charles Bloxham. 
supporting WHYY Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at pennmedicine.org slash cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next? At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. This is Studio 2, and I am Cherry Gregg. I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. Historian Charles L. Bloxon passed away at the age of 89 earlier this year. The Norristown native was a renowned scholar, author, and activist who amassed one of the largest private collections of African-American historical items in the world. He had books, manuscripts, photographs, pamphlets, sheet music, and much more with materials, get this, dating back to 1581. Wow, and he donated his collection to Temple University in 1984, but continued his scholarship and collecting. Today, the Charles L. Bloxon Afro-American Collection has 700,000 items and is used by students, community members, and historians from across the country. Earlier this summer, we talked about preserving the legacy of Black Americans and some of the most treasured finds in the Bloxon Collection with curator Diane Turner. One of the things that fascinated me about Dr. Bloxon was the origin story of his love for collecting um, historical uh, artifacts from African Americans. And it all started in Norristown when he was in grade school. Can you tell that story? Okay, well, it was in 1943. But one of the things uh, that happened before that, his father was a collector. Mm. So he used to go to places with him. Uh, he collected antiques and, and also books. So in 1943, when he raised his hand and he asked his teacher, who was a substitute teacher, what contributions had Negroes made to American history, uh, he said uh, later on when I asked him, he said her thinking was with the times. So he was very hurt about it uh, when she told him, Charles, Negroes have no history and it's their place to serve whites. Uh, so with that, it basically fueled um, his uh, lifetime pursuit uh, of collecting. Uh, he had been exposed from his father from Richard Wright uh, writing and so forth. So whenever he got any allowance or monetary gifts, he would purchase anything that had colored, Negro, Ethiopian, Jamaican, Egyptian, you name it. Mm. Uh, and that's one of the greatest things about the Bloxon Collection is the fact that usually when people come there, we have such a range of materials that relate to people of African descent. They're just very happy and overwhelmed because our librarian is Laku Brahano. She always surprises them with <laughs> more than they could imagine that would be in the Bloxon Collection. How did he do it? I, I mean, this was not someone who was born into great means. You know, sometimes you hear about bibliophiles and they inherit a huge amount of money from their family and they spend that, you know, collecting pieces of art or, or books. I mean, how was he able – where did he go to find this stuff and how was he able to, to collect so much of it? Okay, so 
Um, really, and he talks about he talked about that to me because he says, you know, like later on, um, uh, I actually was his um, graduate assistant at Temple when I was working on my PhD, and he would say, you know, people would call and they would want to be close to him, and he said they don't realize the struggle I had to go through because. Basically, he took all of his own money to purchase these things, but the teacher's thinking was with the times. So, you know, whenever he got any allowance or anything, he would go to bookstores, used bookstores, uh, Salvation Army, Goodwill. And because there was this belief that Negroes had no history, he said sometimes he would go into a bookstore. If he didn't have enough money to purchase the book, he would just hide it on the shelf and come back later. Mm. Of course, you know, now, you know, um, to buy some of the things that he got, uh, it would cost you thousands of dollars. But back then, you know, he was able to accumulate these things because that's what he wanted to spend his money on. Uh, and he even said when he was at Penn State, um, uh, Josh Colbreth and Rosie Greer were his um, roommates at one point. This is the great football player, Rosie Greer. Exactly. Yeah. And he said, you know, after games, when they would go uh, to the parties, he would meet them later because whatever town he they were in, he would go to the bookstores, you know. Wow. And so, you know, it was just something he had a passion for. It was he a twenty four seven thing. Yeah, and you know, like he said, I would sit in his office sometimes, and he said, "Fill this." He loved the the feel of the the books, the smell of it, you know, all of that. You know, he would just had that passion. Uh, so. Uh, yeah, and, and he collected because he, he that story happened. He was nine years old at the time. Yes. He was eighty nine when he recently passed. Eighty years of collecting, and one of the things that um, caught my eye was the um, he had a Harriet Tubman signed hymnal, as well as a shawl she received from Queen Victoria that he donated to the to the Smithsonian. Can you talk about some of the beautiful? things he had that you think were like very, very special like that. Okay, uh, let's talk about the Harriet Tubman because he had retired uh, in 2006. I came there in 2007 after they did a national uh, search. And in 2010, he calls me up all excited. He said, you won't believe this, Diane. I said, what, Mr. Blockins? What's going on? He said, um, Merle Wilkins, uh, the great niece of Harriet Tubman, I just got a call from her lawyer. I said, oh, okay. She bequeathed me 39 personal items wow. of Harriet Tubman's. Mm. And I said, well, wow, what are you going to do? Are you going to bring them to the uh, Bloxon collection? Are they going to be part of the – he said, Diane, relax. <laughs> I'm going to pray on it. Uh-huh. And so a couple of days later he called me and he said um, – well, I took the materials and I put them in my safety deposit box, but I was uncomfortable, so I got them out of there, and they're in a safe place now. I said, well, where are they, Mr. Bloxon? He said, under my bed. Hmm. You know, so then uh, another few days later, he said, listen, um, I'm going to donate the materials to the National Museum of African American History and culture of the Smithsonian because Harriet Tubman was such an international person. Mm -hmm. And so I said, oh, that's great, but um, 
can, it's Women's History Month now, can you bring the materials and have them on display for one day? And he said yes. So he brought the materials down, and it was just amazing, you know, because here's this woman, uh, you know, Harriet Tubman, uh, called the Moses of her people. She was a spy. You know, she went into the South to liberate mm-hmm. others. And to see her personal items like a an embroidered collar, mm-hmm. you know, it was just so touching uh, beca- uh, because, you know, like as a black woman, you yeah. know, sometimes you have to be really tough and you have to do these things. But she still had this very feminine side to her. Uh, and so, you know, and then Queen Victoria's shawl uh, was also there. And uh, we were invited to the um, uh, national, well, he was invited yes. uh, to uh, the opening. Mm-hmm. And uh, we went down there. And uh, as Laku and I were going through the exhibit, we mm-hmm. saw it. It's prominently displayed. And uh, speaking of books, we were very excited because all the rare books they had, we have in the Bloxon collection, like Phyllis Wheatley's 1773 edition of her poems, uh, David Walker's Appeal, Nat Turner, first editions of Frederick Douglass, you Mm. name it. We have all those items. We have over uh, 5,000 rare books. And it's all there at the Charles L. Bloxon Afro-American Collection at Temple University. You've been hearing from curator Diane Turner. Thank you so much for joining us today on Studio 2. Thank you. And that is it for our show today. For more, head on over to whyy.org slash Studio 2 or download us wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks is our engineer. And Joan Isabella is WHYY's audio general manager. From Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Avi Wolfman-Erick. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Thank you so much, friends, for joining us.